Welcome everyone to Pin Drop at the Royal Academy of Arts. As Amy said, this is an ongoing collaboration and it really is a great pleasure to be working with the Royal Academy and bring in great people to the stage in response to the rhythm of their main exhibition programme. Tonight is very special for that reason. The exhibition that's on at the moment, Abstract Expressionism, to me is extraordinary to bring together such great work at the Royal Academy for the first time in decades. Rothko, Pollock... For me, Joe Mitchell, Clifford Steele, so many great artists all brought together here under this roof. And in response to that, I was thinking, who can possibly match the great things that Abstract Expressionism did, the weight of those giants of Abstract Expressionism? So we have A.C. Grayling. I mean, perfect in my mind. I was like, it's like top of the list. Yes, Anthony said yes. And I was like, delighted. I was like, this is fantastic. It's all working out so well. Um, one of the great thinkers of our time, so it really is a great honour to have you here this evening, Anthony. Um, author of over 30 books, a great philosopher. The God Argument, I had the pleasure of revisiting it over the last few days. And it really is one of those books that just makes you think, yes. Oh, no, yes, or maybe, yes, oh, absolutely. Maybe I can identify with that, or maybe I can't, and, you know, and challenge the way you think about things. And I think that's exactly what this exhibition does as well. Um, tonight we're going to hear a series of short stories and thought pieces, I suppose, which touch on the themes of the exhibition, some of them more literally, some of them more loosely, and then we're going to have a conversation afterwards. So without further ado, please welcome to the stage the mighty, the brilliant A.C. Grayling. Thank you, thank you. No expectations then. I have to tell you, in connection with that book, The God Argument, I did a book tour in the United States with that book, and, and the tour began in Texas. Fortunately, in Austin, Texas, which, as you know, is to the rest of Texas what uh, the uh, great state of California is to the rest of the U.S. But the man who picked me up from the airport was a rather dour individual, and I was trying to cheer him up with a joke, and I said to him, you know, this book, since it's on questions of religion and so on, it would be tremendously good publicity for it if somebody shot me. I mean, missed, of course. I mean, that was quite an important part of the idea, but, you know, it would be terrific if somebody took a shot. And in his rather do away he said to me in Texas assassination attempts are usually successful so I thought well I, I won't do that well I'm going to begin with a short story um, it's a, a way of presenting a rather nice in the literal acceptation of that term um, point about uh, number theory uh, and I thought that uh, couching it in a little narrative form might, might be helpful now, as you know, the focal length of the human eyeball changes over time, so I'm going to have to perch my spectacles on my nose and see if I can see what I've written. So this is called Perfect Numbers, A Fragment of a Tale. It goes like this. Suppose I ask you, Anselmo said, to think about the number six. He stirred the fire with a stick of mimosa, a thin branch with a twist near the end. Now and then, the tip caught a small lick of flame from the blaze, which Anselmo watched dispassionately for a moment before knocking out. Albertus thought about the number six. Twice three, thrice two, an even number. One less than a prime, the half of a dozen, the tenth part of sixty, which is the Babylonian great unit, he began. It's an interesting fact about numbers, Anselmo interrupted, nodding appreciatively, that each one has so many fascinating properties. Do you notice that all the properties you mentioned are relational ones? I mean, what you tell me about six is how it relates to three and twelve and sixty and so forth. And that indeed, in the view of some, is the secret of numbers. Though others will say there is something more to them. He poked the fire again. Now, suppose I ask you to think about the numbers six and twenty-eight together. He watched Albertus shrewdly from beneath his eyebrows, which made a luxuriant, bushy screen for the purpose. As if reading aloud from a text inscribed in the fire, Albertus intoned, Both are even, their sum is 34, their product is 168, two is their lowest common denominator, the latter is two less than five times the former, and four greater than four times the former. At which point Anselmo interrupted him again. Good, that is just how to start. But of course, you're looking for a pattern. Albertus nodded. Do you see one? Not yet, Albertus said. There is one, 
there is a profound connection. No doubt you could get it just from thinking of the two of them alone, but it would help if I gave you a third number. In fact, it's the third in a series. It is 496. Albertus picked up his slate and wrote the three numbers down, one below the other. What I would like to know, Anselmo continued, is what the sixth in this series is. The fourth was known to Euclid. I worked out the fifth for myself a long time ago. Will you look for the sixth? Albertus nodded. After a moment he asked, Is it in the nature of the problem that it would be rather difficult to find the seventh because of its size? And Selmo nodded in return. Angelina broke the loaf into three and set the pieces next to their bowls. They sat in silence for a moment, in the accustomed way, so that Angelina could say grace under her breath. And then Anselmo poured their wine. He said as he did so, Well, Albertus, you have that look about you. You have something to tell me. I have, Albertus replied. He marshaled his thoughts and spoke on. The three numbers you gave me are all the sums of their aliquots. In this they are very unusual, at least among the first thousand numbers. I find none others within that limit. Perhaps they grow more frequent, but from what you say about the difficulty of identifying them, perhaps not. My boy, said Anselmo warmly, my boy, well done, well done indeed. You're exactly on track. He clapped his hands. These numbers are the perfect numbers. They are the sums of their aliquots, as you say. Angelina, can you see what is special about these numbers? What numbers, she asked, about the lip of her bowl. Six and twenty-eight. They are called perfect numbers. Can you think why? Of course, she said impatiently. Well, tell us. Well, God made the world in six days. He set the moon to go through its phases at twenty-eight days, which is therefore the rhythm of a woman too, as the lesser light. So the first number is the number of the beginning of things, and the second is the number of their continuation. It's quite proper that they should be called perfect. Bravo, Anselmo said delightedly, clapping his hands again. Yours is the greater wisdom, Angelina, as ever and always. But what is an aliquot, she asked. It sounds like a fruit. It's a part without remainder of a given number, other than that number itself. For example, the aliquot parts of 10 are 1, 2, and 5. Because 1 equals 10 divided by 10, 2 equals 10 divided by 5, and 5 equals 10 divided by 2. Note that 10 is not an aliquot part of 10, since it's not a proper quotient. That is, a quotient different from the number itself. And what has such a number to do with perfect numbers, she asked. A perfect number... And Selma replied, is by definition a number which is equal to the sum of its aliquot parts. The first five are 6, 28, 496, 8,128, 33, 550,336. Albertus had been sitting with furrowed brow during this exchange. He now said, and the sixth is... 8,589,869,056. It was Anselmo's turn to sit silent and still, his bowl halfway to his opened mouth, his eyes blank as he computed. He was not as quick as Albertus at this task, but the contents of his bowl were still warm when he cried, Yes. But of course Albertus was ahead of him still. And the seventh, he said, licking the rim of his bowl, is 137,438,691,328. So you have a method, Anselmo said eagerly. Take any sequence of numbers, Albertus replied, nodding, starting from one and doubling its predecessor, such that their sum is a prime. Multiply the prime by the last term in the sequence, and the result is a perfect number. Anselmo quickly tried the method on the known numbers, and nodded in his turn, his eyes gleaming in the firelight. Angelina, who had been listening with interest, said, Yes, I see. 1 plus 2 plus 4 equals 7. 7 times 4 equals 28. 28 is a perfect number. Easy. Easy, Anselmo and Albertus agreed, saying the word simultaneously, laughing with pleasure. Their laughter drifted into the night.
beyond the flickering light of their fire as it touched leaves and tree trunks in the thick darkness of the surrounding wood where the eyes of enemy spies watched them and evil spirits hovered in wait. <laughs> well, that was the expression of some abstract ideas, if ever there was any. I'm, I'm sure, uh, apart from the mathematicians among you, that would have made no sense at all. But uh, the, the, the point of writing a little story about the oddity of numbers... Now, some of you will know that if you multiply any number by nine and you take the uh, product of that uh, um, multiplication, and you add up the digits, the, the numbers that constitute that product, it will equal nine every single time. Try it. Nine times two is 18, one and eight is nine. Nine times three is 27, two and seven are nine. And so on and so on and so on for all the products of uh, multiplications by nine. Now, this is, of course, not a tremendously interesting fact, although when you find out other little tricks with numbers, like, for example, multiplying anything by 11, you know, what's 11 times 14? 154. What's 11 times 17? 187. What's 11 times 16? 176. You can see the trick. All that you do when you multiply by 11 is to add the two numbers together and put the resulting number between the other two numbers, and there you've got the answer. Admittedly, when the numbers get bigger, you have to carry and add and remember things and so on, but still, the same principle applies. So numbers are very interesting and peculiar. Now, I know you were reading Bertrand Russell's Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy in the bath last night, so you will remember what he says at the beginning of that book. He says, the most difficult thing in mathematics... The numbers zero and one. If you can understand those two, you're home and dry. And so it's just fascinating. Number theory is perhaps one of the most fascinating little branches of uh, mental fun that you could dream up. So if you lie in bed at night doing crossword puzzles or uh, you know, trying to answer quiz questions or something, you should have a little go at number theory. Take an interest in primes and perfect numbers and all the great oddities that there are about numbers because they really are such fun. That little story was intended to illustrate it. I turned now to an essay, so I'm going to read you. I'm rather an admirer of the um, work of Vermeer, especially all those, that sequence of paintings of his... Um, which are taken from exactly the same viewpoint, looking into a room with the window on the left, always something different on the wall behind. And there is a, a painting, actually not all that securely attributed to him in a way, because it's perhaps the least finished of all in that particular series. It's a, a painting called Girl Interrupted at Her Music. Now, if you happen to have a, an iPhone on you, you could easily get Scala archives on Google and pull up all the images of the Vermeer paintings. You could have them in front of you as I speak, because I'm going to refer to a few of them. And I, I didn't bring any uh, AV apart from my hairstyle and uh, the voice, so um, the, uh, that, that, that might be a useful thing to do as a kind of reference point. So this is a little essay um, which you'll see has a, a literary connotation on Vermeer's painting, Girl Interrupted. Among many reasons for appreciating Vermeer's works is their educative power. Anyone seeking to know how to read paintings can learn much from him. His pictures school one's sensibility, rather as playing a B major scale on the piano helps form correct hand position. Just as that scale moulds the hands naturally into proper pianistic shape, so contemplation of Vermeer naturally prompts a viewer to see his multiple and related intentions in composition, symbol, narrative and mood, and how he achieves their effects through the poetry of light. Girl Interrupted at Her Music is compositionally one of the simplest of Vermeer's works, another reason perhaps for the slight insecurity of attribution of this damaged and overpainted work, but it looks very much of Vermeer even to amateur eyes. A young girl sits at a table under a window. That Vermeer table, that Vermeer window, this time with elaborate mullioning, holding sheets of music in her hands. Her music tutor stands behind her, the spread of his arms and the volume of his cloak framing her. She's looking directly at the viewer, called from her study of the score as if by someone speaking or something happening in the viewer's vicinity. On the wall behind the figures is a painting of Cupid with left arm raised, as if about to cast his dart, or perhaps in a gesture of triumph at having made someone fall in love. 
Internal connections among Vermeer's works immediately invite comparisons. The same girl, a little older, appears in Officer with a Laughing Girl. This time, she is dressed for visitors. In Interrupted, she is in everyday homely wear. The theme of music is characteristic in Vermeer, where it exploits the symbolic link between music and amorous possibilities. Young woman standing at a virginal has the same Cupid painting on the back wall, and again the girl looks directly at the viewer, as if with a challenge. Though in A Lady Writing a Letter, the girl, beautifully dressed in the spotted fur-lined golden robe that is a feature of several Vermeer canvases, gives a direct look at the viewer that conveys thoughtfulness instead. Music and Cupid suggest a tale of amour in Interrupted. But as usual, it has the teasing ambiguity of all of Vermeer's narratives, which he skillfully relates by his choice of which moment in the story to portray. Is the tutor unrequitedly in love with the pupil? Do they feel the stirrings of mutual passion? The beauty of the painting lies in the delicate quotations of light on the finials of the heavy upright dining room chairs and in its full blossom on the exquisite curve of the lute sound box and the shining white sheets of music paper. But psychological mystery is equally part of the beauty in Vermeer's work, and here the unsurprised, incurious look of the girl's direct gaze at the viewer suggests that her real attention is elsewhere, perhaps still with the tutor, with what the tutor is indicating on the page. More interestingly still, if it is a love ballad they are sharing, whose lyrics can constitute a message to her. The closest relation to this painting elsewhere in Vermeer is The Glass of Wine. Here the figures are dressed in visiting clothes, the same mullioned window has stained glass as if dressed for a visit too, and a different painting hangs on the rear wall. But the same wine carafe has come meaningfully into play. The same lute and music are now set well aside, suggesting, if one put the paintings into a significant relationship, that everything is developed and the girl is accepting from the man something that will change her outlook. One might think of Vermeer's paintings as episodes from a single drama. With their narrative power and continuous settings, they seem to constitute a novel in oils. It is a fascinating series of paintings, that, that same setting. And when you look at them in sequence, it doesn't matter if you can't think of a chronology for them. Nevertheless, out of the collection of them anyway, emerges a sense that some drama is unfolding. A domestic drama, not a, not a great uh, drama. There's no uh, sense of emergency in any of the paintings, but something rather domestic and quite nuanced, rather subtle in its way, and very pleasing. There's something uh, about the uh, repeated experiment that Vermeer seems to be conducting with that play of light falling from the left, that, that those particular individuals, the repeated use of certain props like the lutes, the lovely uh, fur-lined uh, uh, coat that the girl sometimes wears. And somehow they all come together and they prompt the imagination and one thinks that there might be a story there. Now I will read, if I may, uh, another little essay, and this time, rather apropos, I think, an essay about Mark Rothko. For 60 years, the manuscript of a book about art by no less a figure than Mark Rothko lay forgotten among his papers. His descendants had heard rumours about it, but until a secretary found it, they were not certain of its existence. They couldn't have guessed how fascinating and perhaps important the manuscript would prove to be. Rothko was an erudite, cultured, widely read and highly intelligent man who, as his book shows, had thought profoundly about the nature of art, especially painting, and who therefore had a systematic philosophy of art to offer. Given that the book is incomplete, it would be rash to claim that it represents Rothko's final views. This is especially so given that the portrait Rothko here gives of art is not immediately recognisable as a portrait of his own art a puzzle for the critics to resolve. Such evidence as exists for determining when the book was written suggests the early 1940s. The date is significant because it marks a turning point in Rothko's life. Until then, his paintings had been figurative. Afterwards, they became abstract. During that period, Rothko stopped painting, devoting himself instead to the study of philosophy and mythology. 
he also then suffered a nervous breakdown. No doubt haunted by war news and the fate of his native Russia, when he resumed painting, it was to portray a strange disarray of human bodies and blasted landscapes. The major output of that transitional period, it seems, was this fascinating book. In it, he defends and explains modern art, the art of the half-century preceding his writing of the book, by showing how it is a logical progression in art's unfolding history. His analysis of concepts that play a key role in his theory, plasticity, space and beauty, is illuminating and philosophically profound. Art, Rothko says, is made because it fulfills a biological necessity for self-expression. It's a language which offers an effective means for satisfying this drive. That means that it is a species of nature, that's a quotation from him, which, I quote again, like every other species, proceeds according to logic through stages of change that we can call growth. From a consideration of what is constant in this process of change, Rothko says, we can discern what a painting essentially is, namely, I quote, a statement of the artist's notions of reality in terms of plastic speech, close quote. Painting is a form of generalization in the sense that it reduces everything to plastic elements representing what can be grasped by the senses. Rothko defines this crucial idea as follows. I quote, Plasticity is the presentation of a sense of movement in a painting. End quote. The movement in question is that of recession and advancement of forms in space. Just as figures in, the re in relief on the side of a silver bowl have to be tapped out to give the moulding required, so the handling of paint, sometimes literally, as in the case of those who use paint thickly in almost sculptural quantities on the plain surface, is intended to do its work either tactilely, as Berenson said Giotto did, or impressionistically, as Blashfield said Giotto failed to do. Giotto, you remember, painted each individual blade of grass, but that is not how we see grass, Blashfield argued. We see a mass of green, and that therefore is how it should be painted. The relationship between plasticity and space is fundamental. Space is the philosophical basis of a painting, Rothko said. It is indeed the key to the meaning of the picture. What modern art has done is to take to a logical conclusion the rapid development from Giotto onwards of the painter's understanding and handling of space. For Rothko, the experience of beauty is, and I quote, the experience of rightness reflected in an ideal of proportions and as an apperception of harmoniousness whose recognition produces an exaltation, end quote. This remains true for what the critics of modern art see as distortion. But the distortions of modern art, Rothko argues, are nothing more than logical developments of the distortions practiced by Dürer and Leonardo, and even more dramatically by Signorelli, Michelangelo and the Venetians. Whether or not one agrees with its arguments and insights, Rothko's book is fascinating as the testament of a major artist who had a deeply intellectual as well as practical understanding of what he did. As such, it's required reading, and not just for students of Rothko's work. It's a tract central to the art of the 20th century, not because it influenced anyone, it lay hidden too long, although it might now become an influence, but because it captures a moment of intense perception into the nature of art by one of its chief practitioners. It is a very extraordinary book. It's quite, you can imagine, with any major artistic figure, if a tract, a text like that were found, uh, encoding and explaining that artist's view of what he or she does and, and why he or she does it. And this was miraculous in a way after uh, Rothko's death in 1970, later on when this manuscript was found and people could read what at a, at a tremendous turning point in his life he was thinking about art. If he did indeed write this manuscript, as, as seems to be the case in the early 1940s, then the work that he did before and the work that he did after is completely disjoint. And what he says of, of uh, art here is very unlike his later work, the work that you see hanging in this exhibition, for example. And so it's um, a matter of curiosity and interest to make a connection between the two and to explore what it was that was going on in that, that very, very strong mind of his. So those are my three pieces. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
I always enjoy listening to you read, but also lecture and bring together all those various, the various strands. You make it sound so easy and uncomplicated, which of course it isn't. And there's so much more depth than layer to it, which I suppose is the sign of a, a great mind, a great writer that can make very complicated, big ideas seem so simple, so straightforward. And I think through the kind of the, the, the narrative, you definitely convey that. Um, I would like to open the questions, though. You will all have an opportunity. I won't hog the floor for too long, I promise. But the, open the questions at that point where, you know, Rothko is a central part of this exhibition. He is obviously a major artist within modern art history. And that transition from the figurative, clearly he went through this transitional period and then pushing towards abstraction. And I think having read that after the Vermeer story is quite interesting, the kind of the rub between the two. Um, it would be very interesting to hear from you the kind of that, that movement towards abstraction, which he obviously is arguably, sometimes people argue he maybe is, he certainly didn't identify as an abstract expressionist himself, but he is placed within that, you know, grouping. So I'd be interested to hear from your perspective the, the, the kind of concept, the idea of abstraction and the, the kind of the, 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 the mental process of, of moving into that mindset. Yes, there's so much to be said about this because um, on the one hand, uh, it's clear that anybody who paints in whatever medium they paint is very interested indeed in representing Interesting word, that, representing something. It, it might be uh, something they... It might be a representation of something they respond to in, in what they see or depict, because even, even in a very abstract painting or you know, even, even in a Pollock or something, there, there is a sense of um, the importance on the surface of the colour and the overall impression that it gives and the repeated uh, endeavour to, to, um, to, to say something or to make something of that experience. I quoted that, that thing from Blashfield about Giotto's grass because in the comparison between Vermeer and an abstract expressionist, you know, if that really does collect a, a genre, perhaps it really does, not just the geography and a time, the 1950s in America. But um, if you think about it, there's a huge amount of um, energy devoted to the question of observation. I mentioned in connection with um, the Vermeer paintings that if you look at different uh, uh, aspects of the canvases, you will notice a very, very fine uh, and hard-worked, in, in the sense of thought, uh, use of, of detail. Observation of the way that light plays on wood as against how it diffuses over a, a textured surface, uh, surface like a, a heavy carpet, let's say. And if you look at all these different aspects of the painting, you, you see, you can, you can almost hear the painter thinking about how he's going to do that or represent that on, on this interesting thing, which is a two-dimensional surface. Well, I get the sense that most of these painters in the exhibition were thinking the same kind of thing, but doing it in a very different way. I mean, if you think about the movement from the highly elaborate academic painting of the 19th century, which is highly finished and extremely detailed, and what, what abstraction means is coming away from the detail of the surface and looking only at the light or the mass or the colours until you get to something which is indeed a logical conclusion to it, which is just pure representation of form without form and colour without ne necessary harmony in, in the colours, but, but, but something withdrawn from everything architectural and structural so important in, you know, Lord Leighton and Alma Tadema and so on, to, to something like the stuff that was being painted in America in the 40s and 50s. So it's all very connected, it's all very logical, and seem, there seems to me no sense of strain at all in looking at and enjoying and thinking about Rothko and his work and looking at Vermeer and his work. I completely agree, and actually, the, um, one of the things I really want to see in my lifetime is the, the collection of his black paintings in the, the chapel in Houston, which... Um, I'm sure some people in here have seen. Have you ever seen those paintings? No, no, I haven't, no. Yeah. I think they, they... But people talk about the sort of spiritual transformative effect that those paintings have on them, whether that's because they're expected to have that kind of effect on them because it's in a chapel or whether it's because of those paintings genuinely have that kind of impact. It is interesting. I wonder whether, you know, we were surrounded by large figurative paintings in the kind of that kind of, mm. um, you know, church environment, chapel environment, but to have 
Rothko in that kind of context is quite an interesting thing. It's, a, it's a, surely a different kind of experience, maybe. Yes, well, it reminds me of an interesting point about a, a controversy there was about um, literary art, actually, uh, in the 19th and early 20th century between Proust and you know, some people who had said that you really have to know the history of the author to understand the work. In the case of the Rothko paintings, we know as time went by, they got darker and darker until eventually they got to, they were just paintings of darkness. So there, there might be something in his biography maybe that uh, feeds into that. Understanding that would be really um, illuminating, if that's the right word for dark paintings. And, he, uh, the, and, and so the, the, therefore it would seem that to know about the painter is to know something more about the paintings. Now, Proust was emphatically of the view that a work of art should exist in complete detachment from the maker of it. He thought that, for example, literary work, his own work, came from what he called le moi profond, the profound self that even the author himself had no access to or no understanding of, that it just emerged uh, you know, with, in, in a sort of unconscious way. And it's a really interesting contrast, this. Uh, so one, one needs here to be, um, you know, inclusive, um, sort of multi-artistic or whatever the right expression would be, and say, well, actually, in the case of some artists, literary and, um, and painterly, uh, you do need to know the biography, and on others you don't. And I think, I think some, sometimes paintings will stand... Uh, on their own, sometimes to know who did them and under what circumstances really does give a whole new dimension to them. And I think Rothko is that kind of artist. Uh, I think actually in, in, in contemporary art there's certainly that, that feeling that there is, a, there is a movement away from the, the, the need to explain or over-explain. There is a, a sense you know, that you can, you should be able to appreciate and take it for what it is mm-hmm. without you know, kind of over-laboring the explanation or certainly not knowing much about the practice. Um, I think within contemporary art, I don't know what you think about this, but there is a, uh, I think abstraction definitely has taken a slightly different form. It's been pared down. There's a sort of, there's a, there's a sparsity to, to the work. Um, and uh, that to me is quite, it's kind of a abstraction in its extreme almost because it's sort of removing and removing. And, and, and increasingly, I think that it's leaving more and more for the viewer to do. Um, yes. And, or, and also, actually, there's been a kind of movement as well from the work to the worker, from the work of art to the artist, in the following sense, that if you were to go back to the 15th, 16th centuries especially, you, the, the, the great artists we think of today worked with um, assistants in a studio. So the great artist might do the face and hands and the studio might do the background of the landscape or something. Because after all, um, they were businesses. They were being commissioned. You know, there were lots of annunciations, depositions, crucifixions and flagellations. You know, how many have we got this week and so on. So they've got to churn them out. And, and so, the, the, you know, Titian might do the hands and, 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 and face. And, and then he would have uh, perhaps Jan Bruegel to do the flowers, as we know in the case of Titian's work. So the, 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 there was the, the, the sense was that the product was the point of focus. We, of course, celebrate these great, great uh, figures in art because we so admire their technical skill, their uh, artistic perception, the magnificent way that they have conquered the medium and done so much with it. Now, as time has gone by, we find that um, the artist himself or herself has become a key element in this. So when you read that book by Rothko, the thing that struck me about it, and I quote there, is to say, what is art? Art is, uh, art is a, a, an answer to a necessity that the artist feels to express himself. So really, art has become about the artist. Not about the people who look at the paintings or buy them particularly, although I'm sure some artists like their paintings to be bought sometimes. I know one portrait painter who has a, uh, a little technique, which is that people ring him up and say, I want a portrait of my wife or my mistress or whatever it might be. And he says, uh, well, you can't afford me. Uh, at which point the person says, yes, I can. And then he can name his price, you see. He's, <laughs> have you got them captive? And so, so artists do, do care about that kind of thing. But it, it does seem as though there's been a, a, a move to the figure of the artist as being a key element in the story of the art that he or she produces. Yes, I'm sure there are lots of philosophical theories around that. But yeah, um, yeah. Um, Just bring in everything slightly 
more to today, and I know you've been very involved with um, and very vocal, actually, in the current political climate. And I think abstract expressionism emerged from a, a, a period of you know, huge economic and social global change during the 20th century. Um, you know, there are many essays and, and things have been written about the, how that evolved and how the group came together and why and all those sort of things. So it, it's interesting, I think, at the moment when we seem to be entering or within or who knows which part of the process we're in at, that, at the moment where there is suddenly much more turmoil politically, socially, globally again. Um, and lots of people are making parallels between now and that sort of particular period of the 20th century, whether they're slightly overlabored or not. Is probably a conversation for another time, but I wonder your thoughts on, you know, maybe bringing it back to spirituality and your views on religion and humanism and you know, kind of political sort of uh, uh, turmoil that we're experiencing and what that might lead to. Mm. Well, you know, every generation thinks it's living through the worst time in history. Part of Are the we reason- not then? Uh, no. Well, I don't, I'll come back to that in a minute. I'm warming up to it. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm like a like a high jumper taking a run up at this. <laughs> Because I, I do think it's important that we should, we should discount the following fact, that the reason why every generation thinks it's the worst, most compromised generation in history is because of the way we generalize from our personal experience to our historical self-location. You know, when we're little, people buy us ice creams, we don't pay tax, they drive us around. When we get big, we do pay tax, we have to buy our own ice creams. Things have got worse. So obviously we live <laughs> in the worst time in history. And, and, and we kind of generalize this, and, and we think you know, things were much better in the past. But I do, I do think, despite the, that discounting, despite you know, being careful that we're not overstating things, I do think we live at a very bad time. Well, a, a very difficult time. I mean, let's just leave aside the moment of national, complete, utter lunacy that we're going through at the moment in this country with this wretched Brexit business. Where, uh, By the way, I wake up every morning with the same sense as if somebody had died, you know, a sense of sort of grief at the, at the absurdity of what's, what's going on. And some of you may know that I, I Twitter away, if that's the right expression, about, about this, um, and, and feel very, very upset about it indeed. But in our world in general, we're witnessing a commonplace, which is that movements of people pushed by war, pulled by the promise of better lives for themselves and their children, are again making for these great movements of population. They happened after the Second World War, happening again now with the turmoil in the Middle East. But what lies behind all that and this tragedy, the tragic implosion of the Islamic world onto itself. All the things that are happening in the Middle East, really, we get the by-blow, the splash-over from it in the form of some terrorist attacks here. But the the world tragedy is in the world itself, struggling with itself to try to come to terms with a world which is really very different and largely inimical to an outlook or way of life that uh, is cherished by people who have very traditional views in those societies. So we live in a kind of bottleneck moment because, I mean, it could be that something might happen in the course of that um, difficulty which could really spread much more widely. If a Russian jet shoots down an American jet over Syria or something, you never know what, what could spark you know, a, a, a much more difficult, dangerous situation. Imagine if Putin and Trump are the two people who have their fingers on near some button or other. That, that would be a very bad bad outcome. So we do live at a difficult time, a time where a great um, part of the world, a great tradition in the world is struggling to survive or reinvent itself or something. And if we can survive it, then I think the future looks a bit brighter. My friend and and, uh, colleague indeed at at my college, uh, Stephen Pinker, published a book a couple of years ago called The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which on very good empirical grounds, he describes how throughout recorded history, the last 6,000 years or so, the percentage of people who have died violent, premature deaths in war, civil war, and religious persecution has been steadily declining through time. Steadily declining. And from the 18th century Enlightenment until now, that decline has been even steeper. Mm -hmm. This is despite the First and Second World Wars and the Holocaust and everything else. So on that view, things are improving. Stephen himself points out that they could quite easily reverse if things went wrong. But on the whole, we seem to be getting just a little bit more sensible as time goes by, managing our affairs just a little bit better, even though there is still 
a lot of turmoil in our world. Although I do say to my students, I say, why is it that the newspapers and the TV news broadcasts, why are they full of atrocity and murder, mayhem, war, conflict? Why? answer is because they're news. Most of what happens between human beings, every town, village, city in the world, every second minute hour of every day, is okay. It's, you know, people, we're social animals. We need one another. We get on. The reason why you don't see on the front page of the Times, shopkeeper is polite to customers, because it happens too often to be news. And this is, this is, what, this is the majority experience. So if we, can, if we can keep on diminishing the minority turmoil, then we can get through to the sunny uplands. Okay, thank you very much. And um, I'll open it to the floor for questions. If we're thinking of um, Rothko and Pollock, obviously they're making works around the same time, and that shows in the lack of structure and form. How does the difference in the chaos of Pollock's work and the simplicity and harmony in Rothko's work, is that something to do with their personal life? How does that difference come about? Well, that's, that, that's a really, really interesting question. And I think... I think one, one thing one should resist doing is um, going too far down the road with the people who classify groups of painters with a single label and a name. Sometimes it's just an artifact of their living in the same part of the world at the same time in history, and then they're all made into something or other, the school of such and such. So one could go too far there. One must always remember that the thing that stands... Um, at, the, at the front of the stage with any artist's work in life is the artist himself or herself. So Pollock is Pollock. I don't know whether you've ever noticed, uh, looked at any of the extremely early, more figurative work of Pollock's. He was a terribly bad draftsman and uh, very clumsy um, drawings. Uh, and he found himself in this way of, of, of being able to make something which has a really remarkable uh, complexity to it. Very interestingly, there is something that connects the complexity of Pollock and the simplicity of Rothko, and it's this, that they are both expressions of different ways that you can measure um, complexity. Uh, in, in mathematics and in philosophy, to take us back to our mathematical examples, you can measure complexity in one of two different ways. You can either measure it by the length of the message that it takes to describe it, or by the length of time that it takes to make it. So by the first measure, a Pollock painting is a very complex object because to describe it in detail, every little line and dot and so on, would take an enormously long message. But how long it took to evolve the object itself? How long did it take Pollock to make one of his canvases? Just put it out on the ground, get his paints and walk around it and spatter and splash? How many hours or days that, that it take. So that is a much shorter uh, length of evolutionary time. Take a very, very round, smooth pebble on a beach. It took a very, very long time for it to get to that shape, but to describe that shape takes a very short message. So you can see that, the, that these two different ways of describing complexity are very different from one another. The simplicity of a Rothko takes a relatively short message, but what lies behind it is, as we see from his book, a very great deal of thought. Uh, when you look at Pollock, very long message to describe it, but Pollock found a method, and then he reapplied it and reapplied it and reapplied it. So for each individual work by Pollock, maybe the evolution of that actual work, if you discount his discovery of the method and the technique and so on, uh, is a relatively short method. So they're connected by a contrast, the contrast in how you describe the degree of complexity of their work. It's also interesting as well, the way they were initially grouped together as well. I think like Alfred Barr was one of the first critics to start using the phrase abstract expressionism and started to put them together. I think Rothko sort of became past that a little bit later, and I think, he was, I think Alfred Barr himself actually was ahead of the curve, really. Um, so I think they were very different kinds of people that were grouped together, and I think I agree with you. It can be a little bit abstract to group things together arbitrarily. arbitrarily. So I think um, clearly Pollock was a very different kind of person to Rothko and uh, their life and their way of approaching life, and I think Rothko was certainly you know, it was a great thinker as much as anything else, so the, kind of the product of their work was very different. So, yeah. Never underestimate the, the importance and the impact of art dealers on yeah, schools I, I of art. I was going to say that, being one <laughs> myself. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Very interesting talk. I could listen to you all night. I'm interested in the progression of Vermeer, uh, Rothko, and what comes next. And something that you said when you were reading about the focal length of the eyeball as it adjusts. Um, how would James Terrell fit in this progression? Oh, Lord, I don't know at all. Anybody got an answer for that question? It's a, it's a very interesting question. You know, I haven't thought about it. I just don't know the answer. If there is a tangential point to be made about, uh, could it have been that, that Van Gogh had uh, myopia? Is that why all the stars are blurry? You know, that, that, that kind of question, and you ask the influence of that on, on, on somebody's work. If you ask the question um, about some of the very greatest uh, of artists, and think of Titian and Rembrandt, very late work by them, which becomes very free in, in the use of the paint and the brush and, and very expressionistic, uh, is that because of failing powers, loss of motor control of the hand, declining eyesight? Or is it because, uh, the, you, know, you, you know that thing, the, um, the sort of triptyque, which has the 20-year-old young man know it all and the 40-year-old... Uh, man say it all, and the 80-year-old man says, oh, bugger it all. You know, that, 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 that kind of, uh, that, that sort of progression to the point where the artist no longer particularly cares about whether people think that he's got the skill. He knows that they know that he's got it, so he can just express himself freely. It's so difficult to, to um, sort of second-guess whether it's something physical, something physiological, something psychological, or something deliberate and chosen. Um, so it's hard to say. But thank you for the question. I, I'll, I'll think about an answer, and we'll, next time I'll give it to you. Yeah. I, I wonder if it has any... You talk a lot about light as well, and James Terrell and optics and light plays a big part in his work. And you talk a lot about light and the play that light has on your... You know, in the way we... You know, thinking and painting and philosophy in generally. And light, I think, in James Terrell's work is very important. The optical illusion that you get from that, the way that it does play with the... I mean, the way you perceive things, much like Bridget Riley's paintings would have done, the sort of optic paintings. So I think there's that maybe connection as well. I mean, I'm hesitant to guess, but I might not, and I don't want to speak for Anthony. But no, no, that, 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 that's very interesting because, uh, in fact, um, as the progress of knowledge of things like optics and as physics has taught us more about the nature of, of some things, so some of these ideas have proved to be uh, influential. Thinking, for example, about um, uh, a play of dimensions about superposition uh, in, you know, in, in the quantum spaces. In the, these sorts of metaphors and analogies that people have adopted uh, into their work could influence what it is they want to try to express or to capture in their work. And, and this may, may very well be true of Terrell. Okay. Really, it was just listening to the story about the perfect number and then going on to this, the girl interrupted and, and then moving on to... Pollock or Rothko. What I was interested in is the need for pattern and for finding narrative. For instance, in The Girl Interrupted, we're telling a story that we, which has a, a temporality, a, a before and an after, which, and I've, I think that our brain is always trying to find the pattern and the temporality or the, the storytelling of the before and after of a moment. And I'm just wondering how that relates to something like a Pollock, whether we have to like surrender our need for to find the, a narrative and, and a before and after, and, and become, I suppose, surrender some sort of control and, and uh, um, to be able to enter into a, a chaos or accept a certain amount of chaos. Or do we try to find pattern and, and, and narrative in that piece, or do we just accept it? as we take it in the moment? It's a very, very interesting question, that, because you're, you're dead right that um, we, we are hugely um, story-seeking, story-making, story-imposing creatures. You know, if you think about the world, our explanations of what happens in the world are deeply causal. Everything that happens is the effect of an antecedent cause or set of causes. We also, even in things which are completely arbitrary, think of Rorschach blots and their use in psycho one, psychotherapy technique, um, finding meaning, finding significance even in the random. So the, this is a nat natural part of our cognitive uh, architecture. It's the way our minds work. And to try to get us to see something or experience something without uh, allowing us 
the temptation to impose a, a structure or a story on it is a very interesting challenge and, and a very good experience for us to have. Now, it may very well be that a, a lot of uh, painters who are um, abstract uh, in their um, work, who are interested only in colour or in, in design, uh, and who um, present it to us in ways that uh, refuse any kind of interpretation of that sort, are doing it deliberately. That may be so. On the other hand, though, if, if you think about um, uh, the, 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 the tradition of art... Um, th think, for example, of mythological paintings. In order for a mythological painting, a, a painting of a mythological subject, to make sense to the viewer, so it is the moment at which Hercules, for example, is challenged by virtue and vice to make his choice about how he's going to live, a whole series of famous paintings of the choice of Hercules. Well, that, that uh, um, painting must capture exactly a moment in the story that will be recognisable to a person who knows the story. A selection of an, of an incident or a, a little slice of the narrative that tells the whole story in itself. That was the challenge that a, a painter representing a story uh, had. Now I sometimes think that the work of, of some of these expressionists in this exhibition is asking us to um, enjoy or, or to witness or to be present at a different slice, a slice of... Of, of colour, a different moment, or, or um, a, uh, a, an invitation not to find a pattern or a meaning. And that in itself is, is quite an interesting uh, procedure because it relies on the fact that we have that deep cognitive need to find interpretations or to impose interpretations. So we have that, and then to recognise that, and then to ask us... Um, to not do it or challenging us to refuse to do it is a very clever and subtle thing. And so if it were conscious, perhaps it isn't. Perhaps there's something subconscious in a movement in art which wants to repudiate how people have consumed art in the past and offer them something different. That certainly seems a very reasonable thing to think about what those painters were doing. Uh, you talked about being on the cusp of, you know, better times and the possibility of sunlit uplands. What do you think the role is of art and artists in helping society or politics or us as individuals nudge in the right direction? And how do you kind of combine that with abstract expressionism or not finding a narrative? I hope I was careful enough to put if there. I said, if we can survive our, our current period, then, then things, then I have, might. <laughs> if we can survive our period, then things might get better. Um, if we were to take the underlying trajectory described by, by the Pinker book anyway, and if we could survive this period. So I had that in view. Um, I think all the arts, the literary arts, the performing arts, the plastic arts, I think all of them uh, have an, an enormously important role to play. All one has to do is to imagine a society where there is no art of any kind, no music, no painting, no performance, no dance, no, no stories told about what it is to fall in love or feel grief or, or have great aspirations or struggle, no representation. I think that word, representation, is so important because the reason why we love stories and, and go to the cinema and the theatre and look at paintings and, and enjoy music is because we are constantly recreating. These things are called recreations, but actually they are really genuinely recreations of, our, of ourselves and our alertness to the world. You know how it is that if you were to, to rub a finger, so just keep rubbing a finger for long enough, eventually you won't feel anything. This is because repetition and um, sameness uh, be uh, becomes dead, becomes neutral. Uh, it was, uh, I, I think, um, uh, Pater who said, it's only uh, the dullness of the eye that makes any two things look alike. And, and the less attentively and acutely we look at things, the less we see. Everything becomes dull and numb and grey and uniform. And what the arts do in all their different forms is they keep on waking us up. They keep on you know, spraying us with nice fresh water on the face to make us feel uh, alive again. Uh, and uh, even if you don't like it, you go to an exhibition, you think, oh, you know, I could do that. You know, that kind of response you have to a lot of modern art. Well, e even that, that, that's something which has sort of jiggled you up a little bit and, and kept your awareness 
going. That's terribly important. The arts have many, many, many different uh, importances, including just being important merely for their own sake, just absolutely for their own sake. But what they can do for those of us who consume the arts, I mean, not all of us are musicians and novelists and painters and so on at the same time. So the enjoyment that we have of other people's work at so many different levels, to enjoy the skill, to enjoy the object, to enjoy the effect that it has on us, to reflect on it afterwards, to talk so wisely and knowledgeably about it over dinner when we've been to an exhibition. I mean, all those things are part of the appurtenances of the good life. Uh, and, and without the arts, we would just simply not have that. So it may be that even in the very worst of times, um, the, 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 the arts act as a kind of instrument of salvation for us because they keep our hopes alive. I think, for example, of the string quartets that were played in the National Gallery during the Blitz. You know, mm. um, and w without them, you know, hope would have withered. Uh, and so I think the arts really keep us alive. Um, may I interject a little bit? Just ask, what do you feel about the, the recent cuts to schools and art history courses in schools and the way that we're you know, approaching humanities, I think, broadly, but uh, certainly art history being slashed from the curriculum, uh, I think many people in the arts feel is a bit of a travesty, but um, it'd be good to get your views on that. Well, three guesses, OK? <laughs> um, I mean, I think, you know, the, if, if, everything, if everything is measured by how much it costs and trying to save things and do them on the cheap and narrow the curriculum and what have you, eventually you will pay a terrible price. You'll pay, a, you'll pay a, a, a price for skimping on things. We think of education now as something which is, which is directed at people getting jobs, people becoming foot soldiers in the great economic battle. Aristotle said, we educate ourselves so that we can make a noble use of our leisure. My word, that's not something that you would find any headmaster saying to you when you go along to see if your darling children are going to be well educated there, you know. I mean, I, I say to, to um, students of mine, applicants and so on, I always say to them, look, however much your parents love you, they do want you to leave home eventually and do your own laundry. So, of course, you've got to get a job. And, yes, it's, if you have a job that you love, and you know that, that saying, the Chinese poet who said, I leap from my bed and hasten swift as a thirsty cat to my work. Well, if that's how you feel every morning when you get up and go to your work, you're a very, very lucky individual. So the better you do in your education, the more choices you have to have a career that you really love. And then a career will be a big part of your life and a huge part of your satisfaction. And it will provide you with that stuff called money, which, which by the way, wealth is measured not by how much you have, but by how much you've spent. So if you want to really be wealthy, you've got to have a lot of money to spend. Okay, that's the really important thing. But that's not the end of it. That's only one part of it. You also, as well as a person who has a career, you're a person who, who um, you know, you're a neighbor and a voter and a lover and a traveler and a reader. And a, you're lots and lots of different things. You have many, many identities, many biographies. Your life is a great cable of strands woven together. And for that cable to be you know, wonderful and strong and long is for you to be educated in, that is, given an, an opportunity to know how to respond to all sorts of things. Chief among them, the arts. Because to, you know, to, to, to walk into a, into a room like this and, and just to see smudges of colour on the wall and for them not to leap out... Let, let me give you this example. Since you were... The other thing you were reading in the bath last night, by the way, was undoubtedly Proust. Well, you remember... <laughs> The narrator in Proust says, when I was little, I was taken to play in the Champs-Élysées. I hated it. Great big wide road, lots of traffic, very dusty, really hated it. If only I had known all the lovers who had strolled up and down under the trees, the people who had sat on the benches here and wept with grief, the triumphant armies of invaders who had marched up the Champs-Élysées. If I'd known all the stories, all the human stories that had been enacted here, the place would have burst into life. It would have become a great theatre of meaning. I would have loved it. I could have thought about all these people and all these things that had happened over all these stretches of time. And I would have loved being here because just to look at the Champs-Élysées would have given me all this richness of experience. But I didn't know about it in advance. This is why we need to be educated so that we can be seers of the, of the great theatre of, of life. And chief among them is going to be Art. What will we do without the arts in their whole range?
I think we need a round of applause at that point. I'm going back to um, previous to what you just said. Uh, you said representation, representation of things is important, and art, of course. Um, now, in the West, it's been very much paintings like this or what, whatever kind of paintings. Now, how would you, what would you think of, uh, say, in Islam, paintings, representation of people and things is not allowed? And very often in a Muslim home, you would not find painting and things. And yet they do have quite a good life. <laughs> um, so how do you, where, where does representation come in there? Okay, for, for, firstly, of course, uh, figurative uh, art in uh, earlier Islamic art was permitted. Quite how it got closed down, I don't know. But uh, the Islamic artistic tradition is exquisite in its designs and patterns and colours. I mean, you only have to go to some of the great mosques or some of the places in, uh, in Spain to see the, the, the beautiful, the visual beauty is stunning. So it's not as though they're, they're without something that will constantly refresh the retina. You know, they've, they've certainly got all that. What I meant by representation was this. The reason why we all love literature and theatre and cinema is because we love gossip, okay? Literature is a very organised piece of gossip. We want to know stories about people and what they're doing. We want to keep on presenting ourselves. This is the point of re-presentation. Presenting ourselves with these stories for many, many different aspects and what happened and what didn't happen and why it happened and so on. We want to be peeping through other people's windows all the time. That's why we read novels and go to the movies. And also we want constantly to be revisiting ourselves and our, our experience of these things. I mean... I don't know anybody who, who loves art who only ever went to the National Gallery or to the Royal Academy once. Oh, been there, done that, I don't have to go there again. Of course you keep going back. Every, every time there's a new exhibition, you, you go to that too. Uh, you know, to see quite a few of these, uh, these uh, works here um, are familiar to us. We've seen them before. There was a big Jackson uh, exhibition at the Tate a few years ago, you may remember. Um, uh, Jackson Pollock, I meant <laughs> Jackson Pollock exhibition at the Tate. Uh, but here it is again, so they're familiar. You've seen them. You see representations of them in, uh, in books. But it doesn't stop you from going to them. You don't think they're old hat. Re revisiting, refreshing, uh, constantly being uh, uh, in engagement with these things is, is tremendously important. I think it's rather a pity that uh, those exquisite little Mughal miniatures of, of uh, you know, uh, lovers and in gardens and things. It's, it's such a pity that if it were really true that, that figurative art had been lost to the Islamic tradition altogether, but even in those parts of Islam where it has, you do still have exquisitely beautiful artworks. I just want to ask, um, as art um, enter into the realm of abstraction, um, what criteria would, should the viewer, um, could the viewer use or would you use to determine whether a piece of art is good or bad or, or are there just... Um, like or dislike anymore? Yes, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, it used to be the case that uh, there were um, much clearer criteria to uh, apply in judgment to a, a piece of work. And now, of course, it's much more subjective, it's much more um, various. Um, there was somebody who you may remember um, left the directorship of the Institute of Contemporary Art having decided after biting his tongue for many years that a great deal of modern art is what he described as craftless tat. Well, I, one, one sort of knows the feeling, but one sometimes is tempted to think, well, it takes a great deal of compost to grow a flower, you know, so it doesn't matter. Just let, let, let a, a hundred flowers bloom, so to speak, and, and uh, it doesn't matter if a lot of it is rubbish and doesn't mean anything. I do remember an occasion when I went into the uh, Brighton Art Gallery to look at the Magritte's there. You know, they've got a couple of Magritte's there. And there were people standing around an object on the floor talking very learnedly about how beautifully curved it was. It was a light fitting which had been taken down for cleaning. And, and uh, so the, the um, you know, there, there is a sort of mixed uh, <laughs> problem here about standards of judgment, what we're judging and everything else. And of course, somebody could make a perfectly good case for saying that that light fitting, which was rather a beautiful object actually, could be you know, like, uh, well, we're very familiar with um, ordinary objects, found objects, put into a gallery and therefore given a different 
you know, we're invited to look at it in, in a different way. I mean, you know, take a urinal, for example, there you are. That becomes a work of art because it's put into a setting where you notice something about it. So what judgment do we use? Well, you may remember in literary criticism, the academic kind of, of literary criticism and the Sunday newspaper kind of literary criticism had two different origins. One, the former from Coleridge, the second from Hazlitt. And uh, uh, Sainsbury, um, George Sainsbury in the late 19th century said, actually it is the Hazlittian form of, uh, of criticism which is really the one that we should go with. Why? Because it is about how you feel on your pulses what this work does for you. What does, how did you feel at the end of that play? When you put the novel down, when you turned away from the painting, what did it do for you as a human being responding to a piece of work that somebody else had done? You don't have to like it. You don't have to like everything. But you've got to be honest in your reactions to it. You've got to recognize that, that work went into it. You've got to ask yourself questions about what's going on here. Uh, and you may find in this sort of complex of, of questions you, you ask that there is something that's happening in your response. It might be delight. It might be interest. It might be seeing something anew. It might be... Oh, you know, but any of those is a reaction. An artist who, who um, you know, produced a piece of work and even got that, the last of those reactions to it would prefer that to indifference. On that note, thank you very much. One final round of applause for Anthony. Thanks so much.